the state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at an historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laugh as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond, but at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. Let's hear it for our super producer, Max Williams. Ballyhoo. Ballyhoo. Woo. And indeed, and uh, you're Noel, I'm Ben, and uh, it turns out uh, that since the three of us reside here in the United States, we love traveling, but it can be a little bit expensive, you know? You have to, uh, you have to either go over the Pacific or over the Atlantic. It's weird when you think of how so many other countries are so much closer to each other. Like you can wake up in Europe and you can drive through, you know, four countries. Uh, you can see the world pretty easily. But today's episode, Noel, we're learning about some folks who decided to take Europe to the States. You can see the world right here at home. Uh, you know, I mean, we do have, we have states that are different enough culturally, I suppose, but usually you have to trek quite a bit farther than you do in Europe to see a real change in that culture, in that landscape. Uh, we live on the East Coast, and today we're talking about the West Coast, um, which is basically kind of feels in some ways like going to another country. Things are very different. The land uh, hits a little different, a little rockier terrain. You got your deserts, you got your snow-capped mountains and all of that good stuff. And uh, you got your, your lake cities as well. California mm -hmm. is, uh, is lousy with variations in, uh, in terrain. And today's episode features uh, a nursery rhyme that I think is familiar to pretty much everybody in the English-speaking world, London Bridge is falling down. It's a bit of an earworm. We don't have to sing it because it'll, it'll get to you. Falling down, falling down. London Bridge is falling down. My Fair Lady, not to be confused with the uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein musical, My Fair Lady, which is a, quite a banger in and of itself. Henry Higgins and Eliza Doolittle and all of that. 
pretty sure that's where the name comes from, uh, the uh, the old nursery rhyme of yesteryear, which I believe dates back to the uh, the the Middle Ages. Yeah, yeah. It's a little bit misleading, too, as a nursery rhyme, because it seems to imply that there is only one London bridge that could not be further from the truth. There has been some sort of bridge going across the Thames for nearly 2,000 years. Uh, And we're getting that, actually, from the Lake Havasu Area Chamber of Commerce. Why? Why would you ask? Well, we'll we'll, we'll just plant that seed. We'll get back to that part. Yeah, 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 yeah. uh, The very first London Bridge was built by Roman forces way, way back in 43 CE. And throughout the history, thanks to our research associate, Mr. Max Williams, there have been multiple bridges, again, built across the Thames, and not all of them stayed in London. Yeah, I mean, this is no shade on the Romans. I mean, the Romans kind of uh, uh, were first to market with bridge tech, you know, I mean, with their arches and all of that. They knew how to build themselves a bridge. Uh, no better way to ford a river or a stream or a lake than with a bridge. So you kind of got to have them. But then over time, you know, wear and tear sets in and you got to update some things. And sometimes the whole thing just kind of comes tumbling uh, and or falling down. So we'll get to that eventually. But uh, McGill University um, had this to say on the history of the London Bridges. Uh, London Bridge is a bridge in London, England, over the Thames between the city of London and Southwark. Southwark. I don't know. Let's uh, let's have some some Brits write in and tell us how we got that one wrong. I think it's it's got to be Southwark. That seems right. Sure. Yeah. Close enough for government work, right? But as you pointed out, Ben, uh, multiple bridges throughout history have been referred to as the titular London Bridge. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of like how multiple planes are Air Force One if the president's on them. So th- let's talk about this very first bridge. Again, according to the Lake Havasu area chamber Why? of commerce, <laughs> we'll we'll get to it. They uh the first the first bridge, the one built by the Romans, was a pontoon bridge. So they had a row of boats that were anchored in the river, and there were planks laid across the boats. Uh, they may have used ferry boats as well. And the next record we have of a bridge in in this area in London is. It's weird. It's a it's a mention in a very strange story. In 984 CE, uh, a widowed woman and her son are caught driving, quote, pins into the image of a man. Yeah. Did they draw the image? Did they scrawl it into the dirt? Uh, unclear. But there the was a definitely- woman at the time was thought to be a witch. <laughs> right. Definitely some dark forces potentially uh, trying to be manipulated there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as you tend to do in these days with uh, folks suspected of witchcraft, uh, they're killed they're drowned. Well, the, the intent was to drown the both of them. Uh, the woman, unfortunately, perishes in the Thames uh, while her son is able to escape. It always reminds me of that scene in Monty Python, The Holy Grail, where they talk about how to figure out if someone's a witch. You got to, you know, see if they're made of wood and wood floats. And if they sink, then they're not made of wood and therefore not a witch. But then they also drown. Uh, anyway, it's, it's a good film. In 1014, uh, the Danish forces are holding London, and we've got some returning cameos from previous episodes. The Saxons, under King Ethelred the Unready. I love that name. They teamed up with some Vikings who were led by King Olaf from Norway. 
Together, these forces sailed up the Thames to attack the London Bridge and attempt to divide the Danish forces. But these Danish forces protected their ships with thatched roofs pulled from cottages that stood on or around the bridge. These guys rode up under the bridge. They put their cables around the piles that supported it. You know, basically the post going into the into the river. And then they rode off at full speed. They pulled a bridge heist. London Bridge fell down. I got to say, though, we got to take a second to talk about uh, uh, Ethelred the Unready. What a nickname that is. What, what did he do to deserve that? I mean, you know, you've got your, you know, Eric the Red. And this guy is the Unready. I have to check. I'm not sure if he's the one that got shot by a crossbow while on the toilet, but he might have been. <laughs> there's one. There's one of these guys in this in that family line who died that way. It's a little too dark for me to write about in a ridiculous royal death, but I well, he might be it. Now the whole shot, no spoilers for uh, for the Game of Thrones uh, TV series or the Song of Ice and Fire, but there is a very uh, um, important character in the series that gets shot uh, by a crossbow while on the toilet. And it's in the novels as well. Okay, so this moment where these forces, these united forces pull down the bridge, this leads to the London Bridge from the nursery rhyme. Uh, you can go ahead and call that one the old London Bridge. In 1176, the first stone bridge is built. Uh, it's It's kind of a... EP'd, you could say, by a guy named Peter of Cold Church. And it takes a while to build. It's not done till 1209. And so we're looking at what, 33 years to build. And it was a worthwhile investment. It lasted for hundreds and hundreds of years afterwards. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No big bad wolf's going to huff and puff and blow that one down. Stone uh, was king in those days of construction. It had a road that was 20 feet wide and 300 uh, yards long. Again, we're back to sort of some construction details here. Gothic style uh, architecture um, involving 20 arches that we know are very good at bearing loads. Um, there was also a drawbridge, a wooden drawbridge that could allow kind of the way it would, it would uh, disconnect in the middle. It could be let out and then ships could pass under it. Uh, and it also could be opened up to keep invaders from crossing. This is a very important strategic militaristic use but also very practical just in terms of, uh, of trade. Mm -hmm. And this bridge became part of the city, right? You, you would have houses, you would have shops built on the actual bridge, and it didn't take long for the whole thing to be covered with buildings. It was functionally a street across the river. Mm, also, to right. jump back in here, it was Edmund Ironside who got shot on the toilet by a crossbow, who was Unready's son. Ah, there Boom. it is. There it is. Love it. In 1212, a disaster occurred. A bunch of people were on the bridge, and they got caught between two fires. Their fire code, as we understand it in the modern world, was not a thing back in the 1200s. There's a thing called the Stone Gate House on the bridge, and its roof had these poles on it. And this feels like a pretty brutal practice, but people would put the heads of traitors on these poles, T-R-A-I-T-O-R-S, not just traitors, not just like, uh, you know, avid collectors of coins or something. No, yeah, this is like, you know, the old head on the pike uh, routine to deter others from crossing, you know, those in power. 
And Max, you found this little uh, twisted fact here that uh, they actually dug up the body of um, Oliver Cromwell and uh, decapitated his dead body and stuck that bad boy up on one of these pikes. Yeah, it was a it was a continuing practice. It was very it was a very popular fad for quite some time. And luckily, it's not a fad that London is currently into. So back to these fires. Disaster is the right word. They could absolutely spread very quickly through different buildings because of the material used to construct them. Let us remember the bridge is stone, but a lot of the buildings built on the bridge are wood and they're very close together. Again, there's no such thing as fire code. So lots of people can die very easily. And this happens repeatedly. If we fast forward to 1623, there is another fire on the bridge. A maidservant leaves a pail of ashes under some wooden stairs. Unfortunately, the environment is such that this causes a fire on the stairs. In the blink of an eye, very quickly, 43 houses are destroyed. A lot of the shops are burned beyond repair, like they're going to be teardowns. And people start moving away from the bridge. It's kind of going downhill. You know, the ashes detail made me think of uh, the another nursery rhyme, Ring Around the Rosy Pocket Full of Posy Ashes, Ashes We All Fall Down, which you know is a reference to the plague. But if you want to do a little mashup of these, you could have the ashes uh, as a detail in the old My Fair Lady rhyme because that caused this one to fall down as well. And it's funny that you mentioned that because according to Snopes, Ring Around the Rosie is not about the Black Plague. Oh, which no! I always I, I, I thought that for such a such a long time. But uh please check out the neat little article on Snopes by David Mickelson about Ring Around the Rosie. And maybe we do a nursery rhymes episode oh, too. Yeah. There's so many some cool of those ones. Are, are interesting and quite dark. dark. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. <laughs> So after the kind of teardown situation, the bridge was actually widened. Possibly, I don't know what you guys think, but maybe to give a little bit more space in between these uh, these these buildings so that the fire wouldn't spread quite so quickly. Yeah, I think that's part of it. I think also they just needed to keep the bridge actually navigable mm. for, you know, carriages and things like that. Because as these buildings got added on, the road just became narrower and narrower. Right, 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 right. And they also added another feature with a uh, quite large center arch to add a little bit more support. That version of the bridge uh, stood for quite some time until 1831 when another New London Bridge was unveiled. Ah, yes. So, okay, the old London Bridge is gone. We're now in the era of the new London Bridge. This is still not the modern London Bridge. Lots of bridges. So it's 1821. Parliament gets a committee together and they say, all right, let's look at this bridge. Uh, The bridge is the worst for wear. Again, uh, it's been badly damaged during something called the Great Freeze. So they said look, it's going to be worth the time to just build a completely new bridge. It's going to have to be different from the other bridges. Uh, We need something bigger, better, bolder. In 1824, the committee accepts the plans of a guy named John Rennie, and his bridge design is erected about 100 feet 
to the west of the old bridge because that's where the Thames gets pretty narrow. The river is only about 900 feet across at that point. Yeah, it kind of tapers. So on June 15th, 1825, construction begins. It's sort of like, a, I guess, a ribbon-cutting type situation with some luminaries in attendance. Uh, the mayor of London at the time, John Garrett. Uh, the old Duke of York. One of my favorite of the Dukes. Uh, and then six years on William the Fourth and Queen Adelaide unveil the, the new London Bridge. Um, and the old one is demolished. So the, the old one is still standing while they're building the new one. It's just like over further, like you said, Ben, to that, you know, re reposition to that point where the, the, the river tapers a bit more. The old one is still standing during construction. They knock down the old one in a big show of, you know, whatever, uh, huzzah. And then they... Um, unveil the new one and there you go now we've got new london bridge and it's instantly super duper busy uh and it, it just gets busier as the railroad becomes a thing in london and london bridge station opens just south of the bridge and pretty soon we see a whole new species of traffic across the bridge as thousands of people are crossing it every single day and it it becomes a, a commonplace aspect of the city. But again, it's taking a lot of punishment. It's taking a lot of wear and tear. And the new London Bridge, which is still not the modern London Bridge, had a bunch of issues. In 1962, the high muckety-mucks and the boffins of London looked at the bridge and said, oh man, this thing is literally falling down like that nursery rhyme mm -hmm. we all love. It is sinking into the river because there's too much traffic for it. Literally too much weight. Yeah, I mean, it's the, sort of like the idea of uh, a foundation of a house can sort of start to settle in like really negative ways if you're not careful. And it can actually sink into uh, into the earth. Uh, and that was But happening. they didn't want to destroy it, though. No. They wanted to do something with all that history. They did. It was, at this point, uh, part of a, a, a rich legacy for the city of London. So they decided to uh, sell it as some sort of interesting flex like for uh, like you're like okay this is an artifact this represents all of this history of ingenuity of the good people of London town um so let's sell it let's put it up for auction and then use the proceeds of the sale to build a new one but i got to wonder man like who thinks this is going to work like who who is the audience for this like who 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 are they trying to sell this to very rich people who discovered oil, most likely. I guess. Yeah, yeah. very eccentric, wealthy people. Maybe it has to be an American, probably. Uh, or decayed, uh, you know, Eastern European aristocrat who's got an axe to grind with Western Europe. Uh, <laughs> there, there are some weird potential customers. And, you know, if, they, if their auction for the whole bridge didn't work, they can maybe do something where they sell off pieces of it as memorabilia. Like here is a brick from like the, the London Berlin Bridge. Wall. Yeah, and that's, that was one of the people just grabbing it. You know, no one I don't think sold break bricks. From I have pieces. Uh, I have pieces of the of the Berlin Wall, which is a weird thing to have. So fast forward, the current or modern London Bridge is constructed. We're going to bracket the auction for a second. We'll get to that. But the modern London Bridge is constructed by a guy named John Mowlam, and 
His team works on it from 1967 to 1972. Queen Elizabeth II officially opens the bridge on March 17th, 1973. That's the bridge here today. And if you're thinking of that really cool, iconic-looking bridge that you see in almost every picture of London, that's not the London Bridge. That's the Tower Bridge, right? So again, we will get back to the auction and all of your questions about what kind of weirdo buys a bridge uh, will be answered. But uh, it is sold and the proceeds do go uh, to creating this more modern construction, uh, which is made of uh, concrete and it is 928 feet long. It cost four million pounds. Which is kind of a steal. Seems like a pretty good deal. Uh, and that comes from the city of London's Bridge House Estates, which is, I guess, uh, they're the ones who kind of handled all this bridge uh, this bridge business. Mm-hmm. And, and for everyone who is unfamiliar with this very strange, ridiculous situation, yes, the city of London is different from London, London. The city of London is a city inside of London called the city of London, and they've got a bunch of really weird rules. We did something on stuff they don't want you to know about it years and years back. So the previous bridge is sort of disassembled, I guess, piece by piece. Yeah, as they're, as they're, it's almost like they're phasing in one bridge and phasing out the other so that people can still traverse the river. Mm. And, and we said this, yes, there was an auction for the other bridge. It is true, folks. It was sold. We'll go to Evan Andrews writing for history.com. This bridge has stood for over 130 years. And it just wasn't worth renovating. So the city of London, when they said, we're going to build a new bridge, we're going to build a thing that can deal with automobile traffic, they came up with the idea of the auction because of a pretty, pretty wily city councilor, Ivan Luckin, who said, hey, you guys, Americans will buy anything. And in 1968, he went across the Atlantic and he started trying to sell a bridge to strangers, which is the old school, like stereotypical grift, right? Someone says, hey, I'll sell you. I own the Brooklyn Bridge for 50 bucks. You can have it. They might even give you a certificate or so on. So this is one of the only real cases of somebody selling a bridge in a way that was not a grift. Uh, He knew it was going to be tough and he leaned into the history aspect. He told he didn't emphasize the use or the efficacy of the bridge. He emphasized the history. You're not buying just a bridge, he said in a press conference in New York. It is the heir to 2,000 years of history going back to the first century AD to the time of the Roman Londinium. And most people politely declined, except for one guy, a businessman named Robert McCullough. That's right. Robert McCulloch, indeed. A resident of Missouri, lifelong resident of Missouri, uh, who was an industrialist who had um, created companies that sold oil. I I was just teased a little bit earlier. Uh, Sold oil, motors, and of course, chainsaws. That's what you do. That's that's the, that's the, the, the golden triad right there. Oil, motors, and chainsaws. And he was, uh, as you might imagine, a bit of a kooky fellow. He was known for spearheading some some pretty out there business ideas, uh, which he stood behind completely. 
1963, he bought thousands of acres of land near Lake Havasu, 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 uh, in Arizona, um, which is a body of water that was created when the Colorado River uh, was dammed, uh, not like, you know, by hellfire, but like by, you know, uh, the process of damming. McCullough then created or founded a community around the lake uh, called Lake Havasu City. And he intended to make it sort of like a resort community, a bit of a, you know, um, uh, tourist destination, right? Yeah, but this is a problem. So the Lake Havasu community, Lake Havasu City, as, as it's called, it's in the middle of nowhere. It's Arizona. It's kind of hot. They need something to zhuzh it up. They need a reason for people to visit in the first place. And our buddy Robert says, I had this ridiculous idea of bringing the London Bridge to the Arizona desert. And he was joking with the folks at the Chicago Tribune magazine. He said, I needed the bridge. But even if I didn't, I might have bought it anyway. Because I'm so wacky. <laughs> yeah. Wah, 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 yeah. Wah, wah, wah. yeah, he's the real kookster, that guy. Yeah, and he talks about how he... Uh, <laughs> he talks about how he essentially got hammered with the authorities from City of London to try to get a good deal. He said, we poured an awful lot of scotch trying to loosen them up enough to give us some idea of how much they wanted. So... What what is the what is the actual price he ended up paying? I thought you were originally going to go to like he was getting hammered by the city with like regulations and rules as to no, he in fact was getting uh, absolutely uh, wasted with these folks pouring whiskeys and coming up with crazy ideas. Uh, and then you know just it's a negotiating tactic, you know the old social lubricant. He again was telling the Chicago Tribune that he learned that the cost of dismantling the bridge was uh, $1.2 million American to the folks over in London. So McCulloch and a business associate of his, who he had partnered with, a fellow named Wood, uh, figured that it would be not too insulting of an offer if they just doubled that, right? Uh, but also a pretty good deal. You know, because they're co- they're covering the costs of the demolition. Again, it's not really. I keep seeing them using the word demolition. It feels like a little bit of a misnomer. It's the demolition I think of as being like exploding something into dust and debris, and then you know, uh, using a glorified industrial broom and dustpan to just get that stuff out of there and like bury it or whatever. But no, they had to dismantle it. So that actually, once again, in terms of like good deals, that seems like a pretty low price. You know, but a real demolition probably would have been cheaper. Right, right. And so he wanted to, again, put a personal spin on this. He said, I'll also just add another 60000 U.S. dollars there. $1,000 for each year of my age when the bridge reopens here in Arizona. So this all together brings the price to $2,460,000. And boom, Robert is officially, when you think about it, the owner of the world's largest antique because it's, you know, it's the whole bridge. And again, that comes from the excellent article I mentioned earlier, Evan Andrews on history.com, how London Bridge ended up in Arizona. As you can see, fellow ridiculous historians couldn't give you the title right away. We had to build up to it. How indeed? That is the question. 
<laughs> and uh, very carefully, because again, we know that the um, process of you know dismantling this bridge was sort of an engineering feat in and of itself. So now you got to put the thing back together after, of course, shipping it. I wonder if the cost of shipping it was taken into account. Uh, it seems like it wasn't, at least in terms of the purchase price. So that would have been something that McCulloch would have been responsible for. So they had to like package up each of these bricks, labeling them in such a way as to make it clear which one connected to which one so that they could maintain the, you know, the structural integrity of the thing. And they, you know, you can't just, these are arched pieces that have to connect in just exactly the right order to create those uh, load-bearing arch structures, right? Yeah, just so. And it sounds like a crazy endeavor, but again, there's a lot of money involved and people are treating the bridge and the pieces of the bridge with immense respect. It is a incredibly meticulous, painstaking disassembly and assembly process. They do something weird. They ship it, you know, through the Panama Canal. So it arrives at Long Beach, California, and there's a convoy of trucks, a fleet of trucks carrying the these crates across the desert. And construction crews are already kind of figuring out how to modernize the bridge. They build a hollow core of steel reinforced concrete. And then over that kind of skeleton, they they lay these 10,000 tons of that 1800s granite. It takes, uh, it takes a while. And they also are getting into some weird landscaping. Like they, they make an artificial island, mm -hmm. essentially. It's really interesting. I mean, this this does seem just it just screams like this is the idea of uh, something of a madman. You know, um, it reminds me of the uh, Werner Herzog film starring Klaus Kinski called Fitzgeraldo, where uh, the main character uh, name of the film uh, Fitzgeraldo decides to move an entire opera house uh, into um, I believe the Peruvian jungle and in the making of the actual film there is a making of it's called I believe something of dreams but uh, they actually do it they really do do it. They move this opera house with cranes and lifts and pulleys and all this stuff and it is a thing to behold. I believe this film was made in the mid-70s, and this is just the only way they would have been able to do it, also to get it into this densely populated jungle. So not only is it about a uh, eccentric person who is doing this, but also the actual creators of the film uh, were very eccentric in and of themselves. You know, Herzog is a known interesting gentleman and creative genius and uh, has lots of really interesting hot takes on culture and society. And he made that happen. So this, I can't not think about that when we're talking about moving this bridge. And people did call it Rob's folly, McCullough's folly, uh, just like how they used to clown the guy who purchased Alaska for the U.S. for quite some time. What was that? Seward's folly. Uh, so all told, if you're looking at the, if they were to give him a receipt for this strange adventure, the tab would run up to $7 million. And that is seven times as much as Rob had spent buying the land that made up Lake Havasu City. It wasn't until October 10th, 1971, that London Bridge was ready for its debut in the United States. He makes this such a big party, such a big spectacle. You already know the guy. This is classic Rob. He's got skydivers, fireworks, multiple marching bands, hot air balloons. He's serving lobster and roast beef, like getting the lobster to Arizona already. Spare no expense. This guy is balling. And 
he serves the roast beef and lobster because it's the same meal, according to legend, that was served to King William IV when the bridge originally opened in 1831. The Lord Mayor of London shows up. He's got his whole shebang on, you know, his black robes. He's got a sword bearer walking around. Different celebrities of the day are there. And the New York Times quoted one British reporter saying, it's a super gimmick. It's all quite mad. It could only happen in America. Only an American would think of investing that much in something as crazy as this. In a weird way, you guys, it's an advertisement for the United States. Oh, 100%. And backtrack for, for me really quickly. Uh, Fitzgerald, he doesn't move an opera house. He moves a steamship. A uh, little, little more doable undertaking, but absolutely insane to behold in the film. He wants to build an opera house in uh, in the Peruvian jungle um, in the Andes. So, uh, but yeah, this is a very American undertaking, Ben. This is just kind of like, you know, the idea of ingenuity um, despite, you know, come come what may, you know, we're going to get this done. We're going to uh, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and make this happen, even if it seems like the stupidest idea ever. Mm-hmm. And of course, there were a lot of people who thought this was entirely a crackpot game. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, you know, like I said earlier, there people were calling it McCullough's Folly. A lot of folks predicted that he and his business associates would rue the day that they bought this bridge. And there was there was a, <laughs> a funny statement in and of itself. Yeah, there was there was a rumor. Uh, it's kind of like anti anti McCullough propaganda. Uh, people would whisper this at dinner parties. They would say. You know, the Americans didn't think about what they were getting into. They bought the wrong bridge. They wanted the Tower Bridge, but they got our old crappy London Bridge. Uh, And then these guys, McCullough and crew, vehemently deny this. They say, no, we did our research. We know the bridge we're buying. Why would we spend this much money on the wrong bridge? Well, okay. So that would be hilarious. It would be hilarious, but also kind of who cares at the end of the day? Like it's it's more about the 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 undertaking of doing it of of me you know the tower bridge would have been uh, historical as well not as maybe quite as historical but just the undertaking of moving this thing and transporting it and rebuilding it in a place that it had no business being nor served any real function um, it, that in and of itself was the whole kind of uh, I don't want to use the word grift because this really wasn't he's not ripping anybody off per se he's just you know creating kind of a wow factor of like you know uh, a display of um, absolute absolutely bold, you know, kind of bravado in doing this thing. So whichever bridge it was, I think it probably would have had roughly the same effect. Yeah, agreed. And it's very smart, too. Just because someone's eccentric doesn't mean they're dumb. Uh, It is exactly what Lake Havasu City needs. It saves the development. Because it was sort of fizzling before. Like, he wanted to create this, like, resort community, this tourist attraction. It wasn't really working. And this Again, was... It's, yeah. yeah, it's hot. It's arid. It's in the middle of nowhere. It's tough to convince people to go. There were only a few hundred folks living there in the early 1960s. By 1974, there were over 10,000 people there. By 1975, the Chamber of Commerce, which has done a great job uh, with the, you know, we're leaning on them as a source. The Lake Havasu City Chamber of Commerce says this bridge gets us 2 million visitors per year. Wow. That's it, impressive. Right? It, it worked crazy like a fox, you guys. Rob is crazy like a fox. Wiley, 
like Coyote. Uh, Robert McCulloch, uh, you know, as we mentioned, he was a fan of these types of gambits. Uh, and he went on to launch a few others <laughs> that are kind of interesting sounding. In 1977, he promoted uh, something called gyroplanes as commuter vehicles. They're sort of like helicopter adjacent. I don't know. Have you seen these, Ben? Do they even exist or did it kind of not get off the ground uh, at all? They look like oh yeah, you know I, how yeah. an El Camino looks like um, a car that and a truck a, that yeah. kind of became a truck uh-huh. at the end. This this looks like a plane that sort of fell into becoming a helicopter. Yeah, it looks like like, like the kind of like shuttle thing you might ride in Tomorrowland at Disney World. It's like it's definitely intended to be very futuristic in its design. The you auto can build gyro. your own at home. I can see that. Yeah, it's, it's sort of like a maybe a two or three passenger vehicle maximum with uh three is pushed okay yes it does seem so because the body of the thing is not very large uh and it only has like it looks like i mean don't helicopters have more than two blades or is it just two blades is it the same exact uh orientation as a helicopter prop yeah it's the same concept but helicopter blades can vary you know, anywhere from just two all the way up to like eight main right. rotor blades. And this one is just two, like straight across, um, you know, like just the one line and then it spins and and uh, gives the thing lift. But duct that, tape and confidence. That's what a that's what a Europlane is. It does. It does. Seem like that. I love the idea of calling them a Europlane. It sounds delicious. So spoiler, the flying car or flying transport thing doesn't work out. But that's how it is when you're an idea man. You, you got to understand that even if 90% of your ideas don't work out, the one big one can make your legacy, right? It can cement your place in history. The London Bridge, uh, the London Bridge Gambit works. And we know just a little bit more about the old London Bridge. It wasn't lost completely to history. According to Ben Johnson in Remains of the Old London Bridge for Historic UK, there are lasting remnants of the old bridge, and you can see them built into other pieces of London architecture. Specifically, Ben Johnson talks about the Tower of St. Magnus, the Martyr's Church on the Lower Thames Street. Yes, and one of the foundational archways under the very tower itself actually came from the old London Bridge uh, that was dismantled in 1831. It was actually originally the pedestrian entrance onto the bridge. So that piece in and of itself has an insane amount of history. Just think about all of the uh, the people on foot that would have passed under that arch. Mm -hmm. That's one of the cool things about London, uh, last time I was there just walking around, I was in the city of London, actually. <laughs> I was walking toward uh, this restaurant that's uh, run by one of my absolute favorite chefs in the world. It's called St. John's. Uh, the chef's name is Fergus Henderson. I was So I was walking in that direction and I would just happen by these plaques about like things that are ancient to me as an American. You know, it's it's crazy how close you can uh, be to history in London. And you can get close to history too if you travel to Arizona. If you say, I don't want to spring for a ticket uh, for a plane flight across the Atlantic, well, not to worry because we have a little bit of London at home. You can go to Lake Havasu today and you can see Rob McCullough's folly. It's it's still there. It's 
super cool. And honestly, I think we should go. It's right on the border of California and Arizona. What do you think? Can we get accounting to pay for that? Accounting, we can just, you know, uh, it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. So, okay. so I say, let's go for it. This guy, McCulloch, man, he reminds me, I may have mentioned this on the show before, but I used to work for a, a fellow whose name I will not say. Um, not a particularly awesome guy. He was not a great dude to work with. And sometimes eccentrics can be a little bit difficult as human beings. But he had all of these kind of little pie-in-the-sky kind of ideas. And uh, he would talk about them. He would, uh, you know, create kind of like, it was a marketing company, so he'd create kind of like fake logos and marketing around them, and then they would fizzle. He wouldn't actually do anything with them. But one of them, I swear, he had his finger on the pulse right before this thing just really became real uh, with no participation from him. He said, what if we had... I came up with, what if we had this like additive for water that was like a powder and it made it flavored and uh, gave it like extra minerals and electrolytes and we're going to call it H2O. <laughs> and uh, I was like, man, that's kind of smart. Uh, and nothing happened with it. And now that stuff is everywhere. So just goes to show if you have a, what seems like a pie in the sky idea, sometimes you're just ahead of the curve, you know, and um, definitely do your best to follow your dreams. Just don't like stomp people into the dirt in the process. And tell us what kind of bridges you would like to sell. Kidding, kidding. But this is this is great. This is a cool piece of truly ridiculous history. And I got to say, I've got a lot of respect for Rob McCullough. I, I love people with big ideas and I can't believe he pulled it off. Congratulations to you, sir. And thanks, as always, to our super producer, Mr. Max Williams. Thanks to Alex Williams. Thanks to Jonathan Strickland. We should try to sell Jonathan a bridge. Oh, yeah, for sure. I think he, he, he you know, he has this the kind of Anglophile that uh, if given the, the appropriate resources, uh, he, he might well buy a bridge or a portion of a bridge that contains um, pieces of, of English history. Also, huge thanks to Christopher Hasiotis uh, here in spirit, Eves Jeffcoats, and um, you, Ben. And thanks to you, Noel. Thanks to you, Max. Let's head off to London or Arizona. What's the difference, really, now? Yeah, when you think about it, you close your eyes. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon Waterways can go where the big ships can only dream, through winding passageways, rolling vineyards, and castled hills, into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time. Special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.
Cash.com. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.